We are continuing in our series in Daniel, picking up where we left off in Daniel 5. Now, uh, thus far, Daniel's been interacting with King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but a lot of time has passed in between chapter 4 and 5. Nebuchadnezzar is long since gone, and uh, as we will discover, we end up in the year 539. If you remember, we started in 605, so quite, quite a significant amount of time has passed. So let's read together. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote in plaster on the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. The queen remembers old man Daniel that's still hanging around. And uh, they call him in, and we'll pick up in verse 17 as Daniel responds to the offer that Belshazzar has made. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, "'Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another.'" Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will." And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, 
you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us His Word, as always, that we would know Him and love Him, but even more so, that we would know His love. So let's pray that it would be clear to us. Father, we pray that You would speak to us by Your Word. We pray that You would make the good news of Jesus plain to us, that You would show us how we need to change, and You would give us a heart to do it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We are uh, obsessed with winning in American culture. We love it. There's an old line that, as far as I can tell, goes back to an old UCLA football coach, that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Uh, As a little fun exercise this week, I went and looked up a bunch of old Nike ads, uh, which are amazing. Of course, there's the iconic Nike slogan, just do it, which is really a special treat for all of you with anxiety and depression and trying to get through life. Just do it. You know, just do it. Of course, every Nike ad is just filled with this sort of thing. Uh, Make yourself unstoppable was one of their ads. Here's one of my favorites. Don't run away from challenges, run over them. There's a lot of stuff about running. Nike's got a lot of stuff about running. There are two types of people, those who run and those who should. That's one of my favorites. Or, or how about this one? Someone who is busier than you is running right now. Maybe the apex of Nike just do itness is this, is this ad. It's a, this is a lot coming at you. This is all one ad. Set goals, exercise. Love yourself, focus on fitness, rest and relax, eat right, smile, portray positive, enjoy life, care for others, tell yourself you can do this. On my count, that's 11 commands all in a row. They, Nike knows the law, you know what I mean? Like they, they understand the law. Let's add a little levity. There is one ad that says, it's not where you place, it's how hard you work to get there which sounds better on the one hand, but then, of course, it means that every day you're just judging yourself against yourself. And so probably the, you know, the, the most significant Nike ad I found simply said, earned, not given. Earned, not given. Now, whatever the merits of you know, Nike products they understand something intrinsic about who we are. We like to win. We like to be successful. 
We like to portray ourselves as successful. We want to buy a product that says we are here to win. We are here to be successful. And this story is a story about success and how it's measured. This is a story about someone projecting success, about assessed failure, and about what real success looks like. So it's about projected success, assessed failure, and real success. Now, when I say this is about projected success, it's important to pick up a number of things that may not be obvious at first blush about what's going on at this feast. I mean, it's a party after all, right? I mean, isn't this just the king having a good time? This is kind of what you expect? Well, funny thing about him being king, Belshazzar is not king. Uh, Actually, if you look at all the ancient Near Eastern records, a man named Nabonidus, his dad was the last official king of Babylon. See, Nebuchadnezzar had died, and then there were three people in Nebuchadnezzar's line that, took, that had the throne after him, but three over the course of about six years, so it was pretty tumultuous. And Nabonidus was a nobleman in Babylon who assassinated the last of those and took the kingship. And so, for a long time, actually, critical scholars pointed to this as a, a reason to think that Daniel was not really a reliable historical document. Then we started to find more <laughs> archaeologically, only to discover that Nabonidus became obsessed with the worship of the moon god, whose main uh, cult was in Haran, way up in the north. And so he went into semi retirement uh, and was putting all of his effort and attention there. And turns out Belshazzar actually was ruling as kind of co regent vice-regent. Now, he wasn't officially king, but one of the interesting things we actually learned from that archaeological record is why he offers the third place in the kingdom here, because he can't offer the second place because that's what he occupies. It's a funny thing, you know, the more that we understand archaeologically, the more it often illuminates the text more than challenges it. But you see, the point of this is that Belshazzar is not actually king. He has taken that title on himself, apparently, and he is functionally, but there's a little PR going on here. Of course, there's more PR going on when we realize that he likes to think of Nebuchadnezzar as his father. Nebuchadnezzar was, you know, one of the all-time greats in terms of, you know, imperial power. And... uh, Yet, he's not really a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's not unheard of in, in how these sor- sorts of uh, arrangements work out that you would continue to call your predecessor's father, but again, a little bit of PR. It becomes more obvious when you start to realize what he's doing when he goes and gets all the stuff from the, from the temple from Jerusalem. He is celebrating the old victories of Babylon. He's bringing in all this stuff from an old victory. And that's important because he is losing all the time. 
the Persians have grown up as an empire. It was actually this, this old Median empire, which was a, more of a loose confederation off to the well, okay, from your direction, I guess. <laughs> it's off to the east and north of Babylon. Uh, but they had slowly grown and sort of joined forces uh, under this guy, Cyrus the Great. Uh, we will talk a lot more about that stuff next week and who Darius exactly is at the end of this chapter. But, uh, but needless to say, the Persians have started to grow, and Babylon has been losing battle after battle. And the telling sign is, the Persians are at the gates. He is throwing a party, and the enemy is encamped around the city of Babylon. It falls this very night of this party. (laughs) In other words, if we're paying attention to what's going on, Belshazzar is running a big PR campaign. Things are great. I'm great. It's not going as badly as you think. But we're told from the historical sources that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were so unpopular that there was hardly any fight. Uh, The Persians were either, well, depends on the sources a little bit. The Persians were either completely welcomed into the city by most of the populace because, uh, because they were so disliked, or if you believe Herodotus, the the uh, Persians actually diverted the Euphrates River, which ran right through the middle of Babylon, and, uh, and they were able to walk in. Whichever the case is, it doesn't really matter for our story here, but, uh, but they were so unpopular that the city fell in a night. The populace hardly put up a fight. And again, all of this is to highlight what Belshazzar is doing. He is trying to convince, I mean, maybe even himself, but certainly the crowd, that everything's fine. We're doing great. We're the best. We're successful. We are winners. This is what we do in Babylon. We win. And isn't it true that our society is awash in the language of winners and losers? And everything in our public life gravitates around who's winning and who's losing. <laughs> so many work environments are about who is winning and who's losing. It may not be Glengarry Glen Ross, yeah. coffees for closers, but eh, a lot of work environments are pretty similar. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And you see, the problem isn't that competition is inherently bad. I mean, there's, in some ways, some types of competition are unavoidable in life. Uh, It can be appreciated, right? Like in sports, when there's real mutual respect, it can be a good thing. It It can encourage us to learn and be better and excel at doing what we're doing well. But when it becomes a way of life, it is a terrible thing. When the way that we start to see the world is whether I'm successful or not, whether I'm a winner or not, we've got a deep, profound problem. And it starts early, doesn't it? I mean, when you're a kid, right, I mean, you get get this very tangible thing called grades. And you can look around the class and figure out who had the best grades. 
Maybe it's the extracurriculars, right? And we know who's like, who the really good athletes are in school. And we know who those who are really good at, you know, theater and other things, we know who they are. How you stack up. We, we grade people on their coolness, on their funniness. And as we get older, it doesn't really change. I mean, the measuring stick changes, right? <laughs> but then it becomes about career. It becomes about how much you're earning. Uh, sometimes it's about our relationships, right, and who maintains those friendships best, about who finds love. It becomes about parenting. I mean, isn't that just quicksand, right? Like comparing yourself parentally, right? <laughs> like that so, so many of us just fall into all the time, right? Who is crushing it in parenting and who's not? And boy, that's a quick turnaround. <laughs> if you think you're crushing it, just wait five minutes. Uh, we even make leisure a, a competition. Who's doing the coolest thing for vacation? Who's doing the most interesting thing? Who is the person who has the most know-how in staying in shape? and staying healthy. I mean, it's, the more, you know, we get older, the more it stays the same. We're still comparing ourselves to other people. Of course, as we talked about pride a lot last week, so much of this is rooted in our pride. I mean, notice how Daniel takes Belshazzar back to the story we just read in the previous chapter to point out his pride. It is motivated by what he fears. We're motivated so often by our fears. We want to compare ourselves so that we keep the fear at bay. We're motivated by what we worship more than anything. I mean, this is, you might say, the root problem is a kind of worship dysfunction. And Belshazzar is worshiping gods that demand, I mean, even though they're made of silver and gold and wood and iron and all this stuff, gods that demand that He lives up. You're not assessed by a given identity, but what you have earned. And that's the real question, right, is what drives us to a sense that we need to earn what is it we're really worshiping? That gets us to, I think, the assessed failure of Belshazzar here. Of course, he's having a good time, and then he sees the hand. Now, we're only told he sees it. We're not told anybody else sees it. So, some commentators think that nobody else at the party even sees the hand. They all see something on the wall, but they can't really read it. So, again, most commentators agree, it's probably not the words mene, mene, tekel, parson written on the, 
you know, in legible letters or anything like that. Something, and there's, so there's a bunch of theories about like what is scratched on the wall, and some of those are really interesting, but they're at best speculative, so I'm not going to get as far down that road. But um, something is scratched on the wall that needs interpreting because a gigantic hand has come out and written on it. He's trying to make sense of it. He's freaking out. Uh, it describes, you know, his whole, this whole kind of like meltdown that he's having. In fact, uh, one of the statements uh, that his limbs gave way might even be read, his loins were loosened, might meaning, meaning he soiled himself, uh, which I don't know. But uh, you get the point. He's pretty much lost control maybe in every single way that we can think about, but, the, but they've forgotten Daniel. Again, Daniel's a very old man at this point. If you, if you stop and think about the math a little bit, in 605 in chapter 1, he must have been one of the young men, which means he was probably at least 12 years old. Now it's the year 539, so he is in his late 70s, perhaps even over 80 at this point. Uh, Daniel has been around a long time. Uh, there's been all these changes in kings, and he's forgotten. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where he's at. I don't know what the retirement situation in Babylon was like, but um, Daniel's just been hanging out. And the queen reminds the king about him, and he brings him in. And Daniel then starts to interpret what's happening. And again, he reminds him, as we've already talked about, about Nebuchadnezzar and his pride. And then it's so fascinating, the way that Daniel interprets what is written is as these three words, mene, tekel, parson. And the terms just mean numbered, weighed, divided. And Daniel offers an, interpreta- you know, an interpretation of them. That his, there's been an accounting essentially. I mean, these are all accounting-type terms, right? There's been an accounting of Belshazzar's life, and he is found wanting. It doesn't (laughs) number up. It doesn't weigh right. (laughs) And so, it's going to be divided. Belshazzar is a failure. God has judged him. Belshazzar wants to prove that he's a success. Well, fine. God will do the math. And that's the tricky thing about a story like this, right, is it's about God's judgment. And we're pretty content most of the time to judge ourselves against other people. But are we honest about who we are? One of my favorite, or I should say most, uh, what I think is the most interesting current philosopher is a guy named John Gray who's, who's English. He says this, if there's anything unique about the human animal, it is that it has the ability to grow knowledge at an accelerating rate while being chronically incapable of learning from experience. The evidence of science and history is that humans are only ever partly and intermittently rational. But most modern humanists, 
But for most modern humanists, the solution is simple. Humans must, in the future, be more reasonable. These enthusiasts for reason have not noticed that the idea that humans may be one day more rational requires a greater leap of faith than anything in religion. He's an atheist. (laughs) But he's willing to admit, right? Like, let's be honest. Our track record is very poor. I mean, again, we're comfortable enough when we compare ourselves to one another. Because I can think, well, you know, look, I, I think I'm doing more than some people. Which, of course, involves us at some point drawing a line somewhere. Or somehow doing what, the, what seems intuitively obvious but is actually a monstrous exercise in trying to weigh the bad things we've done and trying to weigh the good things. I mean, we inevitably, you know, (laughs) stack the deck in favor of our good things. We don't want to be honest about the bad things we've done and the effects that they've had on others and on ourselves. But of course, when we start to say, well, you know, how do I not just impress my neighbors or look better than people that are on the extreme end of, say, you know, 20th, 21st century atrocities. The minute we start to say, well, look, if there's… how does this actually stack up if there's someone outside of this, outside of all this mess, then why on earth would they be impressed? Right? I mean, in other words, if we are answerable to God… <laughs> And for, you know, for the time being, right, however defined, <laughs> why would any God be impressed? We don't learn. We are constantly convincing ourselves that, well, the bad things I've done are not that big a deal. Look at all these good things. This really is one of the great ditches we find ourselves falling into over and over and over again, is trying to convince ourselves that we can be good enough to earn what we deserve. And again, maybe you're not convinced that God exists, but even then, like, let's be honest about whether we are good enough to deserve it. And that much more once you start to entertain the possibility that there is someone who has made us. who does not need to be impressed by what we have done. And so you find that it's not only those outside of the church that are constantly trying to convince themselves that they're good enough, but one of the things that people constantly fall into even within the church is the pit of trying to convince yourself that you can earn God's favor. And that is a never-ending task. I mean, the more that we are convinced that God wants us to earn His favor, the more the commands will add up. I mean, Nike's got nothing on what God would demand, right, if we had to earn His favor. But look, there's real freedom in actually admitting that we can't do this. There really is. I mean, for one thing, 
it helps us to actually avoid the bad apple mindset. The belief that the belief that people are basically good has actually produced more monstrous conclusions than anything else. Because if we're convinced that people are basically good, then when, then when someone does something wrong, we put them in the category of the monster. And we have every reason to try to convince ourselves that what, what, what I'm doing isn't wrong. <laughs> what I'm doing isn't that bad. That bad apple mindset, right, teaches us It motivates us to convince ourselves that what we're doing is not problematic and that when we do think other people are doing wrong, they are outside the scope of love, of patience, of kindness. The more that we try to convince ourselves, even, or anyone else for that matter, that we're a good person, the more that we try to convince ourselves or anyone else that we are a success and not a failure, the greater the burden we will be weighed down with and the greater the incentive to fool ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is okay. That's the road to dishonesty about ourselves. So what does real success then look like? (laughs) I mean, uh, I think Daniel gives us a clue. Daniel, when he's called in, is told, like, look, well, if you can offer a satisfactory interpretation of this, and look, Daniel does not mince words in his interpretation, right? Even his interpretation is pretty pointed. But he offers one. He's told if you do that, you're going to have all these, all these things, right? You're, you get to put on the royal colors, you get, to, you get a gold chain, which was not just valuable in and of itself, but an emblem of authority. Uh, and he'd be declared to be, you know, besides Nabonidus and Belshazzar, the most powerful man in all of this empire. He was going to have all that. And Daniel says, keep it. I don't want it. I don't want any of that. You see… Daniel knows that all of that is passing. What Daniel has already, we've already read about it a little bit in chapter 2, about the sweep of history that Daniel is starting to see, as we'll see in the second half of Daniel, starting from chapter 7, when Daniel himself sees a bunch of visions, uh, some of which have already happened at this point in the story. <laughs> uh, it becomes you know, go back, it goes back in time to tell us about some of these stories. Daniel already understands that the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. And the kingdoms of this world will never succeed. I mean, they will endure for a time, but then they will be raised up and toppled. I mean, that's a pretty persistent theme throughout Daniel. It's, it's something even Nebuchadnezzar came to realize. And it's something that Daniel is going to see in the visions that we'll read about that are coming up. So again, some of which he's already received at this point. Is that the kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Those we need to impress, 
those who give value to us come and go. Trying to live to impress the powers that be now, you know, whether actual like big government agencies or just your friend group, (laughs) they come and go. But God is in control. But I think the real way that we judge success is not simply by Daniel's small example here, but when we consider what that kingdom looks like when it actually comes. When the king arrives, I mean, you can think of this contrast of Nebuchadnezzar before him and of Belshazzar in the way that they're celebrating, dishonoring what God had had commanded Israel to make, the, the instruments for his own worship. And you think, by contrast, to what Jesus does when the king shows up. Jesus doesn't show up with all the pomp and circumstance. He's not running a PR campaign. In fact, he, he's consistently misunderstood, allows himself to be consistently misunderstood even. And when he's talking to his disciples in Mark 10, and maybe you remember this from, I don't know, a year plus ago, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's the kicker. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the kingdom of God does not work like the kingdoms of this world. Whether that is Babylon, whether that is the United States in the 21st century, the kingdom of God does not work like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is built on the sacrificial love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of its king, who who came as a servant, who didn't try to prove that he was equal to God, but came as a servant like one of us and laid down his life for you. The kingdom of God is never about what you earn because you can never earn it. It is always about what Jesus has earned and given to you. (laughs) We're told it is earned, not given, but the truth of the matter is it is given, not earned. It is given, not earned. That is how our King works. That is the way His kingdom works. And that is the most freeing thing of all, because that actually allows you to operate in this world (laughs) better than you can if you're constantly thinking, how do I earn success? How do I prove that I am worthwhile? Because you can be driven by the joy and love that you have in Jesus rather than in the need to prove that you are lovable, that you are the most fun. You are free to care for those who need caring for without thinking, how am I going to get repaid for this? 
You are free to do your best at your career without thinking, well, look, am I going to come out recognized or not when it's all said and done? You're free to do what it takes to do that well without the burden of trying to earn the respect, the love, the money that everybody else earns. We are free to do it for God's sake and not our own. And this means then that sometimes success, yes, it will involve other people recognizing that you're doing something well sometimes. But sometimes in their mind it will be failure because you will not be willing to step on others to get ahead. You will not be willing to bend the truth to make it convenient for you. You will not be willing to take the shortcut because you want to do it well. And sometimes it will be some inexplicable mix of the two. Sometimes people will like what you're doing, and sometimes they'll be frustrated with what you're doing. That's why it's a very poor litmus test to think, are people happy or frustrated with what I'm doing? Get off that train. (laughs) That is the logic of whether you've earned it. But when you've been given, you are not so worried about what everybody else thinks. One example that I come back to uh, thinking about pretty often is an old family friend of ours. Um, his name's Tim Zemer. He is a retired admiral. Uh, so I, kn- I knew him as a kid when he was serving in the Navy. I graduated high school with one of his, his sons, and uh, we knew their family really well. Tim had grown up as a missionary kid in Vietnam. When he was in college, his father was killed during the Tet Offensive, and his mother was severely injured and left her dead in a ditch uh, until, uh, until U.S. forces found her and were able to fly her back. She recovered. Um, he then had to fly as a helo pilot into Vietnam and struggle through what I mean, both his love for the people there and, of course, what he, he was his dealing with his loss. He served a long naval career, again, became a flag officer, uh, in many ways did well. But when he left in the early 2000s, he, he didn't go be a Beltway bandit. He decided to serve uh, as the head of world relief for a few years, which is a major humanitarian effort. In 2006... Uh, President George W. Bush asked him to head up the malaria project. Tim had slept as a kid under mosquito nets, had himself actually had malaria uh, once as a kid. Uh, And he flew all over the world and led all kinds of efforts, joint efforts with different countries uh, to help control and as much as we can, eradicate malaria, which has been a disease that goes back, I mean, Herodotus talks about it in the fifth century. It goes back millennia. And it's funny, Tim was known to fly coach (laughs) everywhere he went, all over the world. 
he was given a hard time by other old retired flag officers who were making a lot of money playing golf in D.C. And, uh, and yet this is one of the things he said. He was given an honorary degree somewhere, and this is one of the things he said in one of his speeches. He said, I've learned over and over that it wasn't my rank or position that was important, that I couldn't enshrine my experience or heritage. It wasn't my father's commitment or my mother's faith and courage, but my own posture before God that's important. We tend to worry about our circumstances and successes, but the Lord is interested in our consecration. Hmm. You see, pursuing success is a self-defeating goal. I mean, you may achieve it on a relative scale, but what will it cost? The Bible's pretty clear. If that's your goal, it will cost your soul. You will be found wanting. But if we know that Jesus loves us, that our status with God is never in question, that our confidence is in what our King has accomplished, not in what we need to prove about ourselves, then success itself is too small a thing to be obsessed about. (laughs) It is too small a thing to focus our mind and our energy and our lives on. We are loved by God, and we are called to love others, sacrificially wherever it takes. And there is no greater privilege than that. God doesn't want your successes. He doesn't want you to earn it. He's given you what you need. He wants you to be consecrated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that everything that we need is ours in Jesus. That we don't need to prove anything. We don't need to earn anything. That everything that is needed is given in him. And it is only ours to live out of that love. Because those are good works given in advance for us to do. They are the works that you have given us. Lord, teach us to gauge our own sense of success, to turn away from the need to prove that we are valuable, that we are worthwhile, but to see the success of Jesus that gives us everything we need. We ask it in his name. Amen.